how do you compete with someone who loves calling every day or or loves X and Y business? Loves right? strip malls. Stru- loves strip malls, exactly. And I mean, if if we have someone that's competing with us and for them it's just a job every day wh- where they're checking a box, I mean, I wouldn't want to compete with me who's passionate and hungry about doing it, next deal, et cetera. One Path is a long, winding, unpaved, back-breaking, bumpy, miserable road to a place called success. The other road is straight, paved, smooth, comfortable, and that road ends up in a place called failure. Welcome to the show. I am Kyle Matthews on the Matthews Mentality Podcast, where we dive into the mindset of the world's most driven founders, CEOs, business moguls, athletes, and entrepreneurs. Each episode will turn our guest wisdom into practical advice that will help you build a deeper understanding of what led them to success and the mentality behind what got them there. Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode of the Matthews Mentality Podcast. Today, I'm joined by, what do you call it, Twitter sensation or, or X, whatever they call it nowadays. He is someone hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people known as the strip mall guy. Uh, if you're wondering who's behind the intriguing Twitter alias, at Real Estate Trent, you're in for a treat. His real identity is a well-kept secret, but his impact on the digital landscape is undeniable. With a staggering over 200,000 follow and counting followers, he has risen uh, swiftly risen to prominence, becoming a force to be reckoned with in the world of real estate social media. But in real life, off Twitter, he keeps a low profile. Uh, he's one of the best-known players in the retail space, very savvy investor. He's been actively buying strip centers since 06, has purchased uh, 39 strip centers, raised over $150 million, has a fund, sold 29, deals womb to tomb. He's joining us today to share his story from building a brand to cultivating meaningful relationships, all the while uncovering business opportunities. And most importantly, we're going to dive into the mindset and motivation behind it all. Strip mall guy. That's what I'm going to call you today. Works for me. Let's do it. Thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. Good to be in Nashville and love to be here. And it's an honor. Truly is, Kyle. Uh, No, thank you. Uh, Have you been in Nashville anytime soon? Last time in Nashville, probably 15 years ago. So it's changed a lot. Yeah, changed a lot. Walked around last night. Good vibe, a lot going on. I like it here. It's a, a it's a like good it. spot. It's yeah. a little smaller than New York, which for the audience, I'll call it SMG. A strip mall guy is based out of New York City, but uh, we're we're on our way. We got a couple cranes up, but um. So I oftentimes I like to introduce the audience to the the guests, but really touch on like how we first met. And if I remember correctly, you being very active in buying multi tenant retail properties across the country, I'd like to think Matthew's very active in selling those. You had had some conversations with some of uh, my teammates around the country and ideally positive experiences. And I think I had just joined social media about a year ago and you had sent me a direct message saying, hey, just nice to meet you. And I'm talking to some of your guys are doing a good job. And from there, we had lunch in New York and since then been talking often, frequently. And uh, whenever I need some social media advice, I turn to you. But what was that like? What was it like as you've been active in the investment space, but then as your social media profile grew very rapidly, very tremendously, kind of managing who you are in real life and, and your identity, but also this very big identity on Twitter? Sure. I mean, ultimately for me, we have to keep buying deals and executing for our LPs or else the social media stuff doesn't mean much. Who cares about this trip mall guy character if he's not a legit player in the business? And so, I mean, to me... 
the whole Twitter journey happened by accident, right? I was on a plane two years ago, 20 years into my career, and I just wanted to respond to a couple things on there that obviously on Twitter is a lot of content that's not accurate and people have their own incentives of why they're putting certain things out there. So I said, well, let me respond. But every time I would want to tweet as, as my identity, be like, well, what's this investor going to think or my tenant or whatever, a friend. And so I said, well, let me just open this account and just respond to a couple things intelligently, not thinking that it would be something where I wouldn't get any followers and I'd probably close it in three days. I just wanted to just see what happened. And so I was, I was killing time on an airplane and tweeted a couple things. The real estate bill and Bob were taken. Literally, I tried to be real estate bill. <laughs> Real estate, Bob. Trent was available. I don't know anyone named Trent. I've never, I don't know that I've even met a Trent. I don't know why I thought of that in that moment, but it, real estate Trent was born, not thinking that it would ever be a thing. And my guess is at least half of your followers probably think your name is Trent. Uh, it's not, guys. Sorry. No, it, it's very random that it's Trent. My name is not Trent. And so I started tweeting and it started growing right away really quickly, which shocked me. It scared me a little bit even. And I said, well, what is this? What have I done? No one can know about this. I'm at 5,000 followers after a couple of weeks, whatever it is. And yeah, I mean, after that, it kept growing and I, I started to lean into it and it changed a lot about my life. It changed my career and it's become a pivotal part of our business now after 20 years and it all happened by accident. I've given myself way too much credit if I said, oh, I was going to open an account and it would grow really big and then it would help us get deals and recruit employees and fundraising. I mean, come on, it's just by accident. All right. So you touched on change your life, change your career. We are, we're going to actually dive into that later, but if you don't mind, I'm your favorite thing for those listening. Our guest is very, um, very reluctant to talk about himself. Very, I'd, I'd say shy. It's part of the anonymous thing is, but we're going to do it. We are going to talk about you today. What does a typical day or week look like for you? Yeah, well, 6.45 a.m., my three-and-a-half-year-old, Daddy, I want to play, right? Yeah. So that's, that's every single morning, 6.45 sharp. So I'll go in there. Wife will get up probably half an hour later, and we'll hang out as a family in the morning. And then I'll go to the gym for half an hour most days, and then I head to my walk down to Midtown in Manhattan. So it's a 45-minute walk next to Central Park on my right. And it's when I think about different challenges going on, you know, in the business, in the industry, what are we working on? What should we be working on? And so I get to the office and it's all about what deals are we doing? Now, are you walking even in the winter? Oh yeah, big coat. Every day I have to walk back yeah. to work and walk back. Unless it's a crazy storm, it just, it, it's, it's, the best part of my day in a lot of ways, other than being... Do you find that is a is almost like a transformation process where you go from husband, dad, yep. to killer real estate investor, yep. and then you, you become that person, and it's Clark Kent going in the phone booth? A little bit, yeah. I mean, it's, it's all about emails, who's emailing, what should I be doing today, and you really... A lot's going on at home, obviously, family, whatever it is, and so I got to have to... At that point, you tune it out, same routine every single day. And then once I get into the office, it, it, it's about which brokers are we talking to? Which deals are we doing? Which offers have we made that we should be following up on? What's my team doing as far as deal flow goes, right? Because that feeds everything about our business. So why don't we yeah. not assume the audience knows? Many will, but talk to us about, as it relates to deal flow, what are the deals you target? What are you looking to buy? What have you purchased? Just yeah. give us kind of high level overview of what you're known. I know what you're known for, but sure. let's let's yeah. So educate it, the end. It's that local mom and pop kind of 
crappy old strip center in the middle of our communities, right? So it's going to be unanchored. I always say that my favorite anchor is a busy street, right? So it's going to be kind of small bay, 1,200 square foot spaces, mom and pop tenants. And so typically it's a it's turnaround stories, right? It's that old strip mall in your in your city that you've driven by a hundred. But you never think about. Yeah. And yeah. it looks like crap. It's sitting there. It's an eyesore. It's dark at night, right? No one really kind of, it's, it's kind of a weird center. So so that's what I want to buy and get it turned around. Would you say your tenants are are very much convenience-based? I don't mean just see stores. I mean sure. like just convenience in the terms of everyday people in their lives. Sure. I mean, it's, it's service-based tenants, a lot of restaurants, right? It's, it's folks who, right, that business is their livelihood, right? I get asked, well, where's the credit? I said, well, the credit is that's that person's college fund for their kids. Like that's their life, right? And so um, that's what we focus on is I've got national tenants, obviously, but, you know, mostly it's the older second gen strip centers um, that need work. Interesting. And so geographically, you you have a pretty wide net, right? Sure. Yeah, I think that you have to. I think that the thinking of if you're deploying capital and focusing on one market, that's 10 years ago thinking. It doesn't make any sense. You can't really scale it like that. There's really not enough deals, especially now. And so I think if you're good at a niche and really understand it really well, I mean, retail is retail. It's like Starbucks, like looking at a center in the middle of in the Midwest versus in Southern California. I mean, they, they know how the property lays out, traffic flow, et cetera. So I'll buy a retail deal anywhere in the country. doesn't matter where it is. We just did a deal in Indiana last month, closing on a deal in San Diego next week. And it doesn't matter. And what's your average deal size, would you say? Probably five to six million dollars, smaller deals. So you stay below, let's call it the institutional buyers? We do, yeah. I think 98% of the properties that we buy, they're owned by kind of local mom and pops, small organizations, not funds. And it's very fragmented. Once you get over 10, 15 million, it gets anchored, larger box centers, which we, it's just not our world. And so even within commercial real estate, I mean, resale, retail is a, a major food group. It's one of the, ma- the, main, the main asset classes, retail, industrial, office, multifamily. But I've always felt like at least your kind of everyday American investor who's dabbling in real estate, it, really their exposure would be multifamily and even rental homes. So again, retail isn't as familiar. And so it seems like your, I don't want to say average everyday American investor who's quote unquote dabbling in real estate they think of it more as a as a residential multifamily or rental home. Like they, sure. they really don't, part of the reason they don't think of strip centers is, and I respectfully, I think part of the reason your account has done so well is, is you're providing information in a product that everyday people interact with, but they never think of it in that sense, or they never think from an investment. So I want to, if you don't mind, take a couple steps back in time and learn more about you growing up, but ultimately what led you into getting into investing in multi-tenant retail and strip malls. So if you don't mind, where did you grow up? Like uh, what's, what's your childhood like? It's something that I've never, I mean, as far as where I grew up, I haven't talked about publicly just because of the, the weird anonymous thing that we'll get into yeah. it later. I grew up in the suburbs in a, in, a, in a large market. I kind of fell into real estate by accident, just like I fell into the Twitter kind of by accident. It was, it was 2002, the whole dot-com thing had just crashed. I had a startup in college like everybody else did in, in that year. And so I finished college. It was 2002, not a hot market. Didn't know what I really wanted. 
to do. And someone I know told me to interview with this broker friend that he had. It's like broker. Did you have any commercial real estate? Zero. I mean, nothing about real estate whatsoever. Like no one, no one listening right now knows less than I did in 2002 about real estate. So except me in 2004 when I got into real estate. Okay. That's that's what I love about real estate is having skill sets and you and I may not have had them when we got into the business, the skill sets of uh, the technical skills of knowing real estate. That's nice to have accelerators. It's really, I always say it's a mindset. And if you have the mindset that skill sets will come. So but you didn't have experience, but you it appears you had the right mindset. Yeah, I mean, I, I was open to learning. I was like the challenge. And so I interviewed with this broker who did leasing and sales of these strip center properties. And I didn't really understand what he did at all. He was he but he offered me a job, which was commission only. He said, Okay, start next Monday, wear a tie. I want you to be here at eight AM every day and let's do this. And all I knew was the guy was making a lot of money. And I said, well, I wonder what he's doing. And let's go just give it a try for three months. It was not something that I, I just said, well, it's, it's August. I graduated in June. I have nothing to really do. Let's just try it out. And so I started on a Monday morning and the guy said, here's a list of owners. Call them. Go call them, baby. He, he printed out a co-star list of a binder of 300 owners. He said, just call them and let's talk Friday. And so I was like, I just call people I don't know and and just, ask. I mean, he didn't, he's like, well, go figure it out, right? And so hated cold calling, but, you know, what are you going to do? I'm sitting there at a desk and... I'd hate to say that's how the business was done because it was when you got in 2002, I was 2004. Yeah. I think a lot of people, a lot of listeners would be surprised. That's still in a lot of places how brokerage is introduced. It's 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 terrible. It's the spark plug of the industry yeah. where deals come from. I mean, it, it truly, it's truly is, yeah. But, so, but the whole, hey, first day, here's a list. Call them. What am I? Wh- call them for what? Well, see if they yeah. want to sell. Sell what? Their property. Okay, I just call, hi, Bill. I'm calling you by hang up. I'm like, oh, God, I feel I'm, I'm getting hung up on. This is awkward, whatever. And so <laughs> I kept at it. Luckily, he also had about 70 leasing listings where it just signed calls where some nail salon will call on a listing for lease, want to open up a shop. So I would take those calls for him and then naively go meet them and then ask to, to represent them as a broker. And so I, I started having those meetings and helping them find deals, which is sort of unheard of. Who represents a nail salon that's got on a $4,000 commission somewhere? But it helped me understand how they ticked, how they site yeah. selection. How they operated. How, how it operated. <clears throat> how do you do a business with a mom and pop tenant, which is the backbone of everything that we do until this day? So I think I know the answer to this question, but, but I'm going to ask it not only for myself, but for the listeners. Sales, cold calling, Putting yourself out there, did that come naturally to you? Not at all. It doesn't until this day. I mean, this interview right now does not come naturally to me, right? But it's it's just something that I love a challenge and it's just something that I had to do. How do you succeed in real estate without cold calling? I don't even know, right? Unless somebody brings you under their wing. So yeah, it's it just, family or something. Yeah, family. Know. But, you know, it's about growing a network. And how do you grow a network when you don't know anyone? Well, get to know people, call them, build a relationship. And so about six months in, there was a client that wanted to buy a property on a certain street. And I called a broker in the area and he said, I've been working this market for 20 years. No one on the street will sell, period. Good luck. I said, okay. So I called, I think there was 85 owners on the property. He said, I have a buyer, all cash, and he wants to be on the, on the street in order to open his own there's a store, mm-hmm. right? So I called everyone on the street and one guy Won the sell, great building, $2.2 million, and closed the deal 30 days later, all cash, you know, and made. And how many months or years was this into your career? Um, 
this was probably ah, the end of my first year, maybe like beginning of year two, actually, I would say. Yeah. It was. Generally right? speaking, we advise 12 months is kind of an average yeah. first closing. I made $21,000 in my, in my first year, mostly because of leasing. I was going to say that's probably better than most. Right? Yeah. And so I mean, because of leasing. And then I think <laughs> at the end of the year one, I made half of that because the senior guy just helped me out on, on, on the listing that, that he was selling. But I ended up closing that deal and it was by cold calling. We say we, we only celebrate two things at Matthews, closings and cold calls. Yeah. And so, <laughs> I've so, heard that. Yeah. yeah. It's, there's a lot of things, uh, a lot of different industries, a lot of different professional career pursuits listeners might be in the middle of right now. And so many have not just aspects, but good chunks of the day-to-day are activities that they don't want to do. So taking it back to cold calling, where again, it's not something that you would say came naturally or just putting yourself out there. How did you overcome that from a mentality standpoint? And there's no wrong answer. Just how did you say, hey, I really don't want to do this, almost have an aversion to it, but you did it. What what do you think helped you overcome that aversion? Just knowing that all growth right, comes down to, I don't want to do this. It's too hard, but I'm going to do it anyway and figure it out. I think until this day, there, there, there are things that I don't want to do today and tomorrow, but you know, if I don't do them, I will not get to that next level. So it's just, I think early on the mentality of, okay, it doesn't matter if you want to do it or not, because if you're going to succeed in life in the long run, like that issue will come up daily of, I don't want to do this. I'm doing it anyways. Otherwise, you really don't have a shot. And I know you're running a, a larger organization now where you have people working underneath you. Do you find yourself having those conversations and providing that same guidance? Right now, especially finding deals is is harder. So just pushing our team when saying, like we had, we had one guy on our team and I said, hey, you might want to work weekends because a lot of owners answer the phone on weekends. And so I, I had to push him and he, he came in and, and worked weekends. But, you know, obviously I didn't have to you know ask him if he wanted to or not. He obviously didn't want to, but... It's just what it takes. So it's like you have to do things that you don't want to do. That's what growth is. In your first year as a broker, not making much money, getting your teeth kicked in on the phones, were there moments where you said, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? I was on monster.com every day, right? And no one For the young yeah. listeners, can you explain <laughs> what monster.com That is? was like the, I don't even know what the job, I mean, I haven't looked for a job in a while, but it's, I guess, LinkedIn. It's like, how do you find a job? Yeah. Right. And so it's, job like a, it's like a job MLS, right? Yeah, exactly. And so I, I would spend probably an hour a day and like my senior broker at the time who might be listening to this has no idea, but you know, every day I'm waking up early, going to the office, wearing a tie and making no money. And it's, yeah, I wanted to quit every other day. But why didn't you? It was failure, right? It was failure. And also I knew the opportunity that I had the guy that I was working under was just doing so many deals and was just in the room for some of the biggest deals in that market for those years. And I'm like, being around him and watching him is such a privilege and such a hack, if you will, that my payment is not in... in the phantom income. Exactly. No. And so I was being paid in the form of learning how he did what he did, right? You pay Harvard hundreds of thousands of dollars to get... And education, and to me, that was a million dollar education that I was paying, like getting paid 20 grand for. And so I just knew that I was in a room that I shouldn't be in. And I'm like, I got to take advantage of this. And so brokerage, I'll argue this as a fact, is one of, if not, I'd say one of the most entrepreneurial career choices, pursuits you could choose. Were you, again, looking back to as a kid, whether it's junior high, high school, college, were you always, did you always lean to being an entrepreneur? Always. Always, yeah. Which I don't know why, because my dad's an engineer. He's the opposite of an 
entrepreneur, but yeah, I always had a business. I would make handmade wooden pens in junior high school and high school. My friends and I would go take Christmas lights down for 50 bucks and break half the lights. I had a startup during college and absolutely. It was, what was it, the it startup? Was, so we would, we would recruit interns. So we basically set up like on college campuses, we'd go have students go find the top finance, top engineering students and go like eBay, PayPal, whatever it is, would pay us to just go bring them like top of the top students as interns instead of them having to go on campus and figure it out themselves. So that was the business. And then when the whole dot-com thing blew up, that went away. It and gave the, you the bug? Oh, yeah. It was, it was fun. It was It's funny because like I was a junior in college and my GPA that year was like a 3.9, the highest that it was during college, during a time when I was working flying around, meeting with Sun Microsystems and all these companies and building this company. And then I realized, wow, if I'm busier, I'm doing better in life. I was going to say, why do you think that is? Because if you're busier, you're doing better. Which, yeah, I was, I didn't think that would be the case, but it was, it was my Spe highest GPA month. I uh, think speaking I'm, of posts or tweets for the audience, strip mall guys always encouraging me to be more active. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Checking me is what I'll call it. And I think we put out one the other day that said, if you want something done, give it to the busiest guy. Yep. And totally it's so true. true. It is true. It's funny. Like some of my LPs who are running huge companies, et cetera, they respond like in minutes. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. So, all right, you're a broker, you're selling deals, but leasing. How long did you do that for? I raised my first, I guess, equity for the first time in 2006. It was four years into the business, mm -hmm. right? Then I stayed in brokers until 2010. So you kind of had this transition where you were brokering, you're a purist your first four years. Correct. And then a, an opportunity presented itself that you said, hey, again, correct me if I'm wrong. You said, hey, this is a good opportunity. Let's see if I can raise the money. And then there was kind of a four-year transition to becoming a full-time principal, correct? Correct, yeah, because there really isn't enough money in the principal side if doing one deal here and there to kind of get by. Plus, if you're a broker, other brokers are not sending you deals if you want part of their commission and you're buying deals yourself. It's just not the thing. And it's you're not part of them anymore if you're buying deals. Yeah, you're kind of a man without a country. So what was, in setting yourself up to go on and have uh, an ongoing, but the, the success you've had as an investor in the multi-tenant retail space, the strip mall space, what are one or two major, major lessons that you learned while a broker that helped you help put you in a position to be a, uh, a successful investor. Niche investing. The more niche that you can be, the better, because then you're seen as an expert, right? So I've been now doing you know, unanchored class B non-credit strip centers, right, which is a niche within a niche of the niche for 21 years straight. I haven't, quote, graduated. So, I mean, I think that was the best lesson early on is just focus. Something that I take pride in, and it's something that I talk about on Twitter a lot. It's all about niches. I remember one time we were we were sitting down, and you were telling me one of the cool things you learned early on was, but again, for the for the retail and educated, you don't have to get too technical, but explain like kind of taking a bigger box and dividing it up to creating smaller spaces, and why that creates more leaseability. I think that was also something that you had kind of figured out early on. Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, overall, our industry is going smaller format spaces. It's just it's shrinking every single year. And so if you have a, a space that's 1,200 square feet, you could always lease it. I mean, it's not, it's not a big overall rent number. If you're at 8,000 feet, right, at a $24 rent. There's only so many tenants. Exactly. And you can't really divide that down. If you have a box that's 12,000 square feet and it's 120 feet deep, you cannot divide it. It's just so... If you do, now you have six, two 6,000 with very little front. Bunch of bowling alleys. Yeah, exactly. Bunch and, of bowling alleys, yeah. that's right. It's just for me something that, I mean, 
I've never focused on anchored properties. It just happens to be something that I've There's only so many anytime fitnesses. Exactly. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Dollar but, trees. So yeah, so so it's been that small format niche. Why do you think retail is getting smaller? Well, I think cost, right? So you're hiring less people, you're paying less rent. I was in Hoboken on Washington Street, which is this yeah. beautiful, beautiful retail kind of strip. I mean, it's very pi picturesque. Yeah, it is. And, and I'm, I'm walking around and I'm like, this is almost fully leased. There's a hundred, just hundreds of tenants here. It's beautiful. But if you look at it, they're all tiny. Even vitamin shop that takes whatever, like a larger footprint, isn't it's like a small store. So there's a pattern here, like areas with, with, with smaller footprint retail spaces you know, tend to do better. I have to admit to the audience, obviously I'm very biased. I am a retail guy by trade. That was, uh, I came yep. up in the, love that. the same industry. <laughs> But whenever you and I get together, we basically just geek out on uh, retail, especially right now. Uh, it's kind of having its moment. You know, it, it had been, it's been a 15 years, whether GFC and, and marking all those rents down to market. Then there was the the doomsday Amazon, Amazon apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the the, uh, the COVID and just shutting down retail. And there was a period of time where some of the different, whether it's local or state or federal, were you, what do they call it, essential business or not? But I, yeah. I, I've always argued that any retailer who's in their space right now, that's a pretty viable business. They've been through about 15 years of yep. challenge and it's really necessity is the mother of invention. And then on top of that, you have, there was a lot of stimulus printed. You have the American consumer, it seems like stronger than ever spending money Retail rents have grown faster than they have in almost two decades. Yep. Vacancy is at historic lows. And over the last 15 years, is effectively a negative GLA taken off, more GLA taken offline yep. than, than yeah. Everybody wants to be in retail right now. It's crazy. So I remember when I was at, I was at a large brokerage in my mid-20s and, right, like when there'd be a, a big convention, everyone gathers, there'd be, you know, office guys over here, gals yeah. and guys, apartments. And, like, the retail people were, like, in this little area. Yeah. No one kind of talked to them. They're nah. like, ah, retail. That's kind of like when no one cared. And now it's, oh, it's all about the retail. Let's do it. And so. We were always the best dressed. Though. Oh, yeah. Well, I wasn't. You probably were. No. Uh, <laughs> I think I went through a phase where I wore three-piece suits. Is this that right? Is, yeah. yeah. It is what it is. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, everyone wants to kind of jump in right now. I mean, obviously, no one wants to buy office. Apartments are getting a bit, a bit tough. So our, our fundamentals are, are definitely there right now. The problem is jumping in and just kind of winging it isn't a thing, right? Co-tenancy is a big deal. How do I lease this space? Can I get $24 on that elbow space? Exclusivities, you know, yeah. yeah. Easement, it's just a different beast. There's so many variables to it. And there's like landmines in the leases, right? Two, three-year options at a fixed rent is going to kill your property versus two, three-year options at a fair market rent. So just like little, just one line here, they're like, I cannot have anyone else here in the shopping center that's doing fitness. Well, that's one line in the lease that's buried somewhere. Like, good luck. Like most deals right now that we do, a lot of deals are fitness deals, right? Or healthcare deals. Mm -hmm. And so retail just is, is full of landmines. And so just jumping into it, it's really risky. It doesn't work. And you kind of have to know the ins and outs of it. So you knew the ins and outs from your brokerage experience. From leasing. From, from leasing, leasing which is really where the rubber meets the road in retail. Correct. So let's talk about jumping in. That first deal, tell us tell us a little bit about that deal. The first deal you, you, you were a principal on that you raised money. Correct. Yeah. So it was a million four, right? And it was on a busy street. And the back space was vacant because it had no visibility from the street, right? And and if I was a tenant, I wouldn't want to be in the back of the strip mall. Nobody sees me. What's the point? And so I thought, well, if I built a monument sign for 10 grand on the main road, right, I'll lease that space. I'll say your name here. I'll lease it. 
quickly. This is a no-brainer, right? And so I got excited about the deal. I said, okay, I, like a million four. If I lease that space, it'll add like 300 grand in value, right? And let's go figure it out. So I was so excited. I called everyone I knew. I made like 100 phone calls. And I think that a lot of like people just saw my excitement in the deal without really understanding it. And so I ended up raising 400 grand from 12 people. Or That's what I was going to say. I was like, yeah. you have a track record as a broker at this point, but you don't, you don't have a track record as a principal. No. Again, push back. I didn't think you had a million four lying around. And so you go out and you raise the money? I raised 400 grand. So you're 50%. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I would just <laughs> co-invest. It was a no-brainer yeah. for me. And so got a million dollar private loan. One of the people that I pitched the deal to didn't want to invest as a principal, but was like, I'm all over this loan. It, that, you know, it's a no-brainer. So closed on a deal, a million four, put up a monument sign, lease the space, sold it a year later for a million eight. Everyone doubled their money. I'm like, okay, wow, is this a business? I just wanted a commission. I didn't even know that you can make money off of that $400,000 no. profit. I didn't know how that worked at all. And so that was deal number one. Everyone doubled their money in about in, in a year and a day, I think. Now you just got to do that 39 times in a row. Let me, let me stop right there. It's like nothing ventured, nothing gained, but brokers take risk just in terms of a career choice. You're, you're straight commission, right? So yep. there's inherently risk there. Yep. I have a philosophy as to why it's the least risky industry over the long run in terms of because you're in total control, but that's a different conversation. But we talk about this all the time, being responsible for other people's capital. Yep. It's almost like you lose your own money. That sucks. You lose other people's money. It's a, it's a heavy weight you carry, especially someone yep. like yourself. And so what was going through your mind, like anxiety levels, yep. nerves, worries yep. when you were doing your first deal? Well, uh, number one, I was very confident in those numbers. Okay. Listen, but it also felt crazy. I was like, okay, what am I doing? It's, it's 400 grand. How I'm old are you at the time? 26. Yeah. Right. But then if I look back just at life generally, every time I've grown materially, it's been when I've done something that's felt a little bit crazy at the time. Like cold calling. Cold calling, yeah. Or starting a fund or whatever it is. And so, yeah, I was scared, but at the same time, I can make 200 grand here. And, and that was a lot of money back then. And that was, well. especially when you're younger, this tends to be the case, but I don't want to lead you. Was that the biggest driver, biggest motivation for you? Becoming a principal? No, I, I mean, I just loved, I love the value add component, right, of the business where I take a property that looks crappy and making it beautiful. I mean, that property, one of the tenants was there for 25 years, 30 years. I was 26 years old. I bought the deal. He was probably 65 years old and he didn't talk to me much at all during the whole process. It was a new parking lot also we did. And so we, we, we raised rents to market. I don't think he was happy about that. And then after we sold, I came in and said, hey, Joe, how are you doing? And he's like, he's like, you know what? I want to tell you, you came in here, you put in new awnings, you leased that backspace with a nail salon that now brings me business. Landscaping looks better. My sign's now also on the monument. Well done. Oh, it's, and that was very meaningful. That was very, I mean, that was very meaningful, right? And so... To me, what, what drives me in the business, that's why if I see a deal that's like a kind of newer, nicer center, I don't like, I want to say, you know what, I love what, I'm, what I can make this into, right? And that's what drives me because these centers are like the centers of our communities in the yeah. U.S., of our suburbs. And so knowing that I forever now, that will be a coffee shop where people will meet their wives, their husbands, their friends, catch up. It, it's, it, for whatever reason means a lot and is a major driver. If I wanted to make a lot more money, I'd raise a $500 million fund and go buy grocery anchored centers. And I'd make more money, yes, but it 
there's just kind of there's really not nothing. We're to, talking about phantom it, income. Exactly. I mean, certainly, compensation and financial success is important. It's a driver, but it's not everything. And it sounds like, as much as the the profit you made on the first deal was very meaningful, no doubt. It, it, that conversation yeah. with that store owner was almost just as meaningful. Very much. I mean, at that point, two hundred grand was a lot for me at twenty six. I could I could do a lot more. Sure. Um, and and so. It's not about money for me. I mean, I know it's hard to believe for, for most folks, but if it was, my fund would not be a $50 million fund right now buying $100 million in deals or whatever it is, right? Looking for these little strip centers that are average of $5 million, right? I go buy larger centers and that 2% fee, whatever it is, right, is going to be is going to be meaningful. But it just, it doesn't, it doesn't excite me. It just, it's, it's not a way that I want to live my life. Yeah, I, I, I uh, oftentimes talk about happiness being kind of a, combination of satisfaction and fulfillment. And it sounds like that wouldn't provide as much satisfaction and fulfillment than what you're doing now, where you're within the communities, improving them for the better. Correct. I mean, I wouldn't like my job right now. I love my job. Yeah. I, I truly have a passion for strip malls. Like when folks meet me, they go, oh, and you love strip malls way more than I would have thought. It's just weirdly, randomly, this is my number one hobby in life. I love this business and happens to be my career as well. So. Does your wife, like when, when you're out, you know, <laughs> spending time with your wife and kids, you're going to eat at a little coffee shop and you just start geeking out on the strip mall? All the time. Is she ever, dude, yeah. enough, right? She's very nice about it. <laughs> She'll look up and say, yeah. Hoboken last week, I was like, oh my God, look at that vitamin shop or the little bar and there's an upstairs. And, and she's she just, like, we just go to the Lego yeah, store. there's no way. Know? It'd be weird yeah. if she cared, actually. It'd be like, why? But yeah, she's, she's been great. I, everywhere I go, like some of my followers now, unfortunately, I look at the strip malls, what could they do better? What's what's inefficient about this property? So that's, I love you, it too much, man. You, you touched on, you know, because you love what you do, doing more, and we're going to get to doing more because you've done a lot more since your first deal, right? And um, I kind of want to talk about the ramping up of your principal life. But yep. before we leave brokerage, yeah. what, what were the biggest lessons or takeaway you took from your time as a commercial real estate broker? And what advice, if any, would you, would you have for, and not just at Matthews, obviously, but it, it's very convenient for this conversation that we're in the same business. Of but course. What advice would you have for any young professional in any industry, looking back now that you have perspective on your 20s, where you were working, we have talked about this, you were working long hours, you were working weekends, you were yep. grinding straight commission. What, what advice would you have? Yeah, other than just learn on it really well, it's what do I do differently than everybody else that differentiates me? So like when you call an owner, a seller, right, that everyone's calling, how do you sound different? What knowledge are you giving them that others are not giving them? So it's be different in a way. So if if a McDonald's would sell, right, I would call three other owners of McDonald's in that market and say, oh, by the way, FYI, this just sold. That's it, right? And so like, rather than calling with just a normal pitch or whatever. So like I cater it to them sure. a little bit more. I also would call as a broker with a buyer in hand rather than calling for a listing, okay? I had an active buyer in hand those years, and I'd say, hey, by the way, I do I do have someone that will, will write an offer, right, which I think is different than the regular pitch of, hey, I'm calling for a listing or whatever it is. So the point is differentiate yourself. Yeah, I, I think as someone who I'd like to think understands the industry, calling with a buyer can be effective if you have a buyer because sometimes owners just don't want to have the listing conversation, to your point. Correct. But we do preach list side controlling inventory. Yep. I just think when agents, even at this company, it happens, unfortunately, when they call for a listing, it's a very bad call, right? Just calling to see if you want to sell, calling because you wouldn't necessarily, I want a listing. But but the way you earn listings in this business, my experience has been building relationships. And the way 
you build a relationship is providing information or something of value that helps put that owner in a position to be more successful. Sure. I mean, looking back, I, I don't know that I would have stayed in the business if I was just calling for listings, right? And it's, I think that the training right now throughout the whole industry has been get the listing, get control, fine. But I'm going to give the other view of, no, go, go find great buyers, not just great sellers, that are active in the market and capitalize and say, what are you looking for? And go find them deals. Because, I mean, I think that in this market especially, you're closer to a deal working with a legitimate buyer who can close right now than you market. are trying to get sellers. So, so everybody wants that control of, of the listing. But if I call a seller with a buyer, I'm also going to double end it. Hey, let's let's talk real. There's no broker on the other side, right? And and a lot of sellers, they'll get a, a discount sometimes, whatever, if mm -hmm. someone's doing that. And so I just think that there's not a lot of focus on – it's a two-way street. There's buyers and sellers. Why is everyone saying so pro-sellers? Okay, what about the buyers? Why, why, why rep the seller and get them the best price possible? Why not get the buyer the best deal possible? There's two sides of it. And I think our industry is really focused so much on – the seller winning, what about the buyer winning? And Spoken like a real buyer. Yeah, no, I mean, but but it's like, objectively I speaking, I mean, yeah. that was how I made money. I would say, hey, I have an offer. In my, my third year in the business, I met this gentleman who was an active buyer, and I said, hey, what do you do? He goes, well, I make offers on strip centers in this market. I said, well, fine. So I just started calling and saying, I have a buyer, okay? When they wanted to sell, I would call him. He'd make an offer every single time. Sometimes it would match what they wanted to Some, sell yeah. for. And I started making hundred grand, hundred grand, hundred grand. When back you have, to back yeah, to back. when you have a real buyer, especially in this market, to your point, it's very valuable. Uh, and then when he sold it, I had the listing automatically as well. What about when you're kind of in brokerage? And, and I want to make this relatable to everyone, not just brokers or real estate professionals, but <laughs> when someone's early in their career, it doesn't have to, have to be in their twenties. It just so happens, oftentimes, many people are early in their career in their twenties, but. In terms of sacrifice and delayed gratification and working long hours and working the weekends and kind of living the life you were living at the time, again, having perspective on, on laying that foundation of professional success you did early in your career, that now that you are married, you, you do have a family and perhaps other interests and, and hobbies and enthusiasms, what advice would you have for young professionals who are sitting there a year or two in? And again, they're not making the money yet because it takes time, but they're just saying, gosh, is it, is it going to be worth it all of this work that I'm putting in? Yeah, I mean, looking back now that I have a three and a half year old son and a wife, I have no idea what I did with all that free time when I, in my twenties. Yeah, right, this is true. It's, it's your time to shine. Go, go, build your career, build that foundation right now because it's so much harder later on. Right. I mean, I make sure every night that my son goes to bed at seven o'clock, I am home unless I have a really, really good reason not to be. Right. And then I'll schedule everything else for eight thirty, eight o'clock or later. Right. And so that's non-negotiable for me. And so having that extra time early on to just work your, your butt off. And you, that flexibility you have in your life, would you say that that is made possible in part by the, the effort you put in earlier in your career? hundred percent. Those investors on yeah. that first deal I mentioned, right, were still there for the next 30 whatever deals. And so that, that time and effort there and doing those deals, that was the foundation looking back 100%. So you were, no you were about getting it. in at 6.30 like the guys and stay until... <laughs> Not 6... That was crazy this morning, by the way. Like these... So I show up at Matthew's office this morning at 6.30 a.m. because I heard that they all show up at 6.30. It was hard to believe. I said, you know what? Let me go look for myself. And it was like 6.29. I walk up. It's packed. Full house. They're all doing research. They're all here. Focused. They want it. So, they want it. 
It's they, you know, they, yeah. they, they're learning the skills, they're learning the, the product yeah. knowledge. Again, that takes a year to get a year's experience, but you can't teach desire. And uh, we very much looked to, to hire for that. I will tell you, just they get in at six for what it's worth. Um, <laughs> wow. But no. When they're 50 years old and someone asks them, how did you start? They'll very proudly say, you know what? It was 6 a.m. at Matthews. I worked my butt off, and that's how I started. Yeah. Like, it's something they're proud of for everybody. Yeah, one of the best things about being a human is we all are very good at forgetting how hard things were. Yep. And it, it is weird. The harder something is over time, it's somehow so the better it, it is in your mind. A hundred percent. So uh, they, yeah. they, they hopefully will look very fond, fondly back on that. promise you they will. They will. That's good. All right, so – Doing more deals. You do this yep. first deal, it's successful. <laughs> then there's a second and a fourth yep. and an eighth. Like just if you could condense, sure. talk to us about building your principal business. Sure. So we did that first deal in 06, sold it a year later, and then bought a Bank of the West, I think, the beginning of 07. And we sold it in 08 in Ooh. the middle of the crash. It actually made yeah. money on it. it, was, it was, yeah, it was a good buy. And so my investors noticed that, hey, he's he just bought a deal that Bank made money. Bank of the money. West go down? No, I think, no. I, I think they got... I think they're a different brand now, maybe. Probably. I don't know. I'm not anyway, sure. But go yeah. ahead. Great bank. Um, so I did that deal in 07, 08. We still you know, like made some money on it, didn't lose. And then it was kind of doing nothing for a couple of years, just a weird market. No one knew where things were headed. And so my big break came in 2010. I saw a Blockbuster video on the market at a $24 rent or $2 for my friends on, on the West Coast. And it was a six cap on LoopNet, whatever it is. I'm going to get docs at this point. But... No one wanted it. And I said, $24 rent, that's a $36 market all day long, easily, okay? So it's a $2 million deal. And during escrow, I called the AutoZone broker, right? And I said, hey, will you guys take on this property? He's like, oh, are you kidding me? 100%. That's a great corner. We've been you know, following it for 10 years. We love it. I'm like, great. Get LOI signed. Closed on the deal, knowing Blockbuster was going to leave, obviously. Everyone's like, why are you buying Blockbuster? They're leaving. I'm like, I know. Blockbuster yeah. had great real estate. Love, yeah. Oh, unbelievable. Real estate. Unbelievable. So everyone else said, why would you buy a Blockbuster at a six cap that's leaving? I said, I'm buying it because they're leaving, right? Because the market rent is much higher than what they're paying. I know that corner really, really well, right? We close on the deal. AutoZone, LOI gets signed. Great. I'm excited. It was like a $30 rent, but you know, AutoZone... When you resell on the cap rate, you get much lower cap rates than average. Great tenant, AutoZone. And so we close on it. We're in lease negotiations, spend $20,000 probably going back and forth. The lease goes out for signature. Okay, great. Everyone's excited. My investors just put in $2 million, which is more than I'd ever raised by far. Mm -hmm. And a week went by. I didn't hear it from the broker. And two weeks went by. And then they had questions that should have been asked day one. Mm. And then they had a question about, the renewal option. This is 2008, nine. This is 2010. Okay. Yeah. Nine or 10. Yeah. And I'm like, I think they're not going to do this deal. I just bought a Blockbuster. They're leaving, right? And who else is out there to take whatever it was, 8,000 feet, whatever it was. In 2010. 2010. And they bailed. And it's not October, so you can't backfill it with a spirit Halloween. Oh, man. No, not, <laughs> not that day. Exactly. Love spirit, by the way. I was scared as hell. $2 million, what do I do? And my, my investors weren't weren't nervous. I was nervous. They were not. Why and do you think that is? I think that they watched the first two deals go well. They know me pretty well. They knew that I was going to make something work and just push till I figured it out. So I just put the property on the market for lease. And I said, for lease, 8,000 square foot or whatever it was. And 
offers came in from Panda Express, AT&T, Chipotle. So knowing nothing about the site, that just speaks to the real estate. That is great real estate. And I think that you said, what was it you said earlier? Your anchor tenant is a busy great, street. A busy street. 100%. I got these offers at rents that were like $40, way more than I thought. But how do I turn a blockbuster into a strip mall? I have zero idea. I know nothing about construction, Kyle, zero. Mm-hmm. Right? So I said, okay. I go figure it out. I have no choice. How do I figure it out? Who else owns these kind of centers? Let's just cold call some owners and say, hey, I have this blockbuster. What do I do? I had my mentor in the background as well. So they said, well, you need an architect. Well, which architect does this kind of thing? So I found one local that does strip malls. So we met with him. He says, well, you need a civil engineer. I'm like, what's a civil engineer? It's okay, well, I'm going to go figure out what that is, right? I go get one of those. Like, you need a plan for upgrading the power. What? It's PG&E. I go figure it out one step at a time. Hire a general contractor, right? So I just I just had to go learn how to turn this blockbuster into you a strip mall. You just figured it out. You just have to. What am I going to do? And, yeah, so we, we ended up doing a full remodel of the site. We did a deal with, with Chipotle, Panda, and I think it was AT&T. And I was there every day on site learning everything going on from the site work, right, to the upgrading the electrical, upgrading the, the plumbing, HVAC units, just absolutely everything. Had a good lawyer help us with the, the leases. So we bought it for $2 million, spent a million dollars on the remodel, sold it a year later for 5.5. For me, it was like, here's a time where this thing happened that I thought was terrible and my career is over, and it turned into be this huge blessing in disguise. Like, yeah. I learned construction now, which changed the whole game for me, right? And it was a win. So then it was like, well, in life, when challenges come up, right? Like you can figure it out. Just be resourceful. Go knock on doors. Just ask a lot of, go hire experts, figure out how to make it work and go learn. And it'll work in the end. And many times it'll end up being a lot better than what you thought. It was a lesson that still holds true today. hundred percent. And that very much is a mentality since, hence is the it body. okay? Yep. Would you, would you say that's a mentality you've always had that kind of entrepreneur's mentality going back to some of the businesses yep. you started in high yep. school and college to brokerage to this, or yep. is that something people can learn? I mean, problem solving is fun for a lot of people. I mean, for me, unless something's a challenge, there's not going to be growth there. So I like figuring things out. But the key is caring about whatever that is, right? So I happen to randomly care about figuring out these puzzle pieces that are in the strip mall game. And so I think having a curiosity and a desire to solve a problem is a motivator that I've seen for people that have done well in life commonly, much more than I want to make a bunch of money. Right. And so that's kind of how I, I look at it as far as is there a problem to solve? Is it something that I'm, I'm, I'm interested in? And it's like I get fired up by that. I want to go figure it out. And fast forward us from your third deal to your 39th deal. It, I mean, it, yep. it accelerated pretty quickly from there. Yeah. So uh, it's the same game plan from day one of find a building that's vacant that shouldn't be vacant or building where there are some issues, inefficiencies on day one. So I want to I want to fix mistakes that the sellers made, whether they're charging half market rent. For no reason, because that liquor store has them convinced that five grand is all they can pay, where everyone in town is paying 10, right? Or there's a space that is 5,000 feet that should be divided. So I look for inefficiencies on day one and then address them, right? So then that 39, 40 times now in a row where it's a site where I'm like, wow, like that and that and that are an issue that I know how to fix. So we're buying a site right now in, in San Diego County where... There's all these really tall bushes in the parking lot that have been there for like 20 years that are blocking half Blocks the property. The frontage, yeah. No one said anything about it. So I go in there and I'm like, there's a, like a like a nail salon. And I go, hey, 
are these bushes bother you guys? No, not at all. I'm like, well, do you realize that that's the main street and here's you and that's visibility that you're losing? I mean, you're here because of that visibility. And they're like, oh, well, I mean, I cannot wait to see what happens when we go put in new landscaping next month. Mm-hmm. And everyone's going to be like, holy smokes, I'm getting out. You know, all these customers are coming in that didn't know yeah. I was here. And new paint job. It's the same exact game plan from that deal that we did in 2006. Yeah. Nothing's changed. Yeah, again, as a retail guy, it's so it's almost. I almost at times wish I didn't either see the world this way. You drive by, uh, especially shopping centers where they mm. plant trees. Yeah, but they're twenty years old and the trees are gigantic and yeah. overgrown. Yeah. And you got to make sure you check with the city to make sure yeah. you can. Trees trim are back. great. Trees are yeah. great. We like trees, yeah. but it's got to be a balance. Yeah, or just <laughs> or just trimming them back and, and cutting them because yeah. again, so much of retail, especially convenience retail, is you're driving either home or you're driving somewhere and you see it, you're like, oh, you know what? Let me go get something done real quick. Yeah, retail is very unique like that. You know, office, obviously very destination, industrial destination, resi, multifamily, different. But um, all right, so you're 2006, 2008, 2010. Yep. Then you start doing deals more rapidly. At what point did you switch from raising per deal, like in a syndication, to saying, hey, you know what? I'd rather just raise a fund and have the money ready, kind of pre-committed with a pre-qualified yep. box. When when did yeah. that happen? That was always in the back of my mind, but I didn't make the switch till about about two years ago. I decided, okay, okay. I'm going to go fund after 35 deals, deal by deal. And look, part of it was fear, right? I had my investor base from early on, awesome folks, trusted me. After 20 deals in a row, which mm-hmm. – which, you know, winners, you you end up just kind of thinking someone knows what they're doing, right? And so I never took on more LPs beyond that initial group, right? I never expanded it. It was easy for me. But then, you know, I wasn't broadening my horizons either. And so I was fearful of fundraising again because I fundraised when I was 26 and then didn't again until two years ago, basically. And so over the years, I get people that say, hey, I want to invest with you. I want to put in a million dollars. But until you're ready to go and until yeah. it's time to cut that check. You really don't know if they're in or not. It's surprising how that works, right? So, so I said, okay, finally it's time. Why don't we raise a fund? And it $50 million fund buying 100 in deals. It took me 90 days from the day we started to raise half the fund. So 25 in, in 90 days and then start buying deals then. And then but the other 25 just trickled in from existing LPs upping their commitment or new LPs that reached out to me. So it was, it was just, it was 90 days of me outreaching and, and grinding and cold calling my network and everyone I knew in spreadsheets. I mean, day five was tough. I was like at 500 grand. I'm like, okay, how am I getting the 50? Right? It just felt crazy. And this is before you blew up on Twitter. This was at the same time. It was crazy. We're and, about to dive into yeah. Twitter because it, again, especially recently, such such a huge part of your story. But before we do that, in kind of closing the book on your, just the period of time where your principal sure. just kind of traditionally raising money for deals. Yeah. What was what was the hardest part of that? What was the the biggest adversity you faced in that period of time? I think it was not knowing if the people that were all you know over the years telling you, "I want to be in your fund one day if you raise one," are going to really do it because I went out there. I was like, okay, guys, I'm raising a fund. It's $50 million. If you raise 11, it doesn't look good. And everyone kind of so knows doubt. It. Doubt for sure. Going back to the beginning of this conversation, you're on an airplane, you're seeing things posted in general, maybe again, about strip malls that you're just like, Hey, this, this isn't exactly yeah. how it works. And you felt compelled to correct the record and it, it just took off. Like it just it kind of blew up. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, everything that I was reading was like, oh, this is a hack and hack that and shortcut and outsource and work part time, which is just the opposite of how real estate works. It's just not how you make money. Start 100 businesses and they're all going to actually you know, passively cash flow. Maybe, I, I guess. But so I wanted to kind of chime in with real real estate fundamentals. Here's how it works. Right. And so 
we were talking about the hack of real estate yeah. is hard work. Yes. That's totally. the hack. That, that is the hack, 100%. Yeah. Shortcut is no shortcut. So just ended up tweeting on this plane, just, I guess, I think it was a real estate ranger who's a cool account. I just, I think, responded to one of his tweets with my very first tweet and not thinking that it would go absolutely anywhere whatsoever. I thought I'd get maybe one, two followers by accident and that's it. And then I wake up to three, four days later, there's like two, 3,000 followers and it, it scared me. I'm like, what? What was the tweet? I don't know what the tweet was. I think I have to go back. I mean, the Zach, first tweet. We, we, you might have to go back, Zach, and pull it up or something. But the anyway, first tweet, yeah. I think, is a response to Real Estate Ranger, whatever it was. But it's funny because it wasn't anything profound. But it just, for whatever reason, like the algo just liked, I guess, the. I don't know what it is, but Keith Wasserman started retweeting my stuff. Right. Yeah, and, and so I, I don't. Yeah, so I never met him before or anything. I was like, why? And every day I would tweet. He would say, truth, truth to his 50,000 followers. I mean, Keith now, but he's, yeah. a, he's a good dude, super active. Oh, he's 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 the best, man. Yeah. He's, he works really hard. I know he, he does, works yeah. harder than anybody. He's a, uh, he's a grinder. He, he's a deal guy. Oh, no, he's 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 good at what he does. Very high level. But good dude, say, too. So your account starts, you have two, 3,000, you're like, is that just, oh, let's see what I could make I thought it was a, No, I, I thought it was a mistake. I was scared of it. I was like, this can't be good. I didn't want the attention. I'm an introvert. Yes. I was I was worried about what this meant. Look, I don't want to rock the boat 20, 20 years into my career. I don't want to rock the boat on a career that I'm proud of. And so I'm like, what does this even mean? Is Twitter? I mean, is this? And then DMs start coming in, direct messages. And that was the whole game changer, right? Like, and was this like DMs where even if it didn't come to fruition with fundraising, just the fact that were people saying, hey, I'd like to invest. You're like, wait a minute. No, uh, it wasn't that. It was, hey, I follow you, love what you're doing. I learned a lot. And then I go on LinkedIn and this person runs a PE company or oh. like a pro athlete. One of the guys who's like the starting center for one of the NBA teams DMs me and says, hey, I follow your account. I have a question about real estate. I'm like, is this is this real? So Watch I out for those athletes. They're knuckleheads. Love those guys, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I learned quickly about what's called the lurker effect on Twitter. Which what is the lurker effect? Lurker effect is... Folks that are out there with, with anonymous accounts or small accounts that are legitimate billionaires, people that are doing huge things in the world, they're lurking, watching what's going on, reading everything mm. daily and kind of understanding how you think and watching you in a way. And they're out there and then eventually they reach out. I mean, it's just heads of banks. I mean, it's it's mm. it's almost unbelievable. Unless I showed you some of these DMs, folks don't really believe me. It's, it's unbelievable. And I think that even for small accounts can vouch for the fact that there's people out there that will just randomly DM you and say, hey, I like how you think about single tenant net or that Chick-fil-A tweet was cool. And you're like, wow, that that person is like the XYZ, whatever and it is. I think you touched on it earlier. The motivation behind the anonymous account was, again, correct me if I'm wrong, I thought I heard you just say was I had 20 years of track record. I didn't want to blow it up based on something I tweet. Was that was that part of the motivation? Yeah, I mean, look, when I had my, my personal account, which I, I – taken down. I would tweet once in a while, right? And I would worry about what my investor might think or an employee hmm. or, you know, a tenant and just like, wouldn't put anything good out there. Yeah, just Do like, you think I that's why? It was fear, really. Yeah. You know, I mean, right? Understandable, especially if you have something that you, you know, to lose, right? Yep. But do you think that's a motivation for most anonymous accounts on Twitter or these people have nothing to lose? They just want to spew vitriol or... Look, like definitely there's a lot of that out there. And some folks still think that that's why, like who don't follow me closely. No, you, think I, that, I don't yeah, think I've ever seen you post something. Yeah, no, I mean, negative, it's but. it's not what I do. I, I just literally don't want to, I mean, it sounds, I, I don't want to be public facing in any way. It's just not my personality. I, I live in Manhattan and my, 
you know, wife and son and I like, go to the park a lot. And it's like, I, I don't want to be hanging out with them. And suddenly someone says, hey, straight mall guy. And I'm suddenly I'm, I'm in work mode. So I want to be in my family bubble. And it's sacred to me. And so hey, you just you just messed up because now there are going to be people walking the park just going up to everyone. Uh, every park. Straight mall guy? Uh, they don't care, man. Straight mall guy? <laughs> no, I mean, so, so remaining anonymous, I think you touched on Trent, right? Trent, when I first yeah. saw your account, I was yeah. like, oh, I guess his name's Trent. Uh, <laughs> Totally by accident and random. No, it's who had a strip mall Bob and strip mall. Bill. It was gonna be real estate Bill. It's real taken. It's gonna be Bob and Bill, and then Trent was the next one. And who knows that? I, would, I didn't uh, realize that then I'd be known as Trent forever. I don't so. know if you started it, but I give you the negative <laughs> credit, like all the something something guy on Twitter. I don't now. know if I want that credit, man. So uh, many quote unquote quote guys on Twitter now, but but no, you're the OG. What's been your favorite thing about Twitter and 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 how you in leveraging it for your for your real estate business? My network, right? And so it's turning these connections that you make online, kind of like this with you right now, into real friendships, right? Mm -hmm. And so we were new to, to New York City three years ago, and I don't know if we'd still be in New York, if not for Twitter, for me, because my wife works in New York as a lawyer. I can kind of be anywhere, obviously. And so it made sense for the fund to be there and have an office. That so Twitter, as followers come through town, they'll DM me, hey, I'm in town, whatever, next Friday, are you around? I'll just look on LinkedIn, whatever, and see, oh, yeah, it's it's whatever person that I follow or follows me, and then and I'll, I'll meet up with them. And so I've, I've made true, yeah. like, lifelong connections that way. And so I'm most proud of that, definitely. Yeah, New York's a super cool town for that. It's amazing. I mean, like, everyone's always coming through New York, right, which is this good is or bad true. in a way. Especially, so. especially... <laughs> I'm going to generalize here, but if, yeah. if you're a serious player in any white collar finance based industry, especially real estate, you better make sure you're getting through New York at least once a year because there's just that that there's so much capital based out of there. The networking in New York is just like next level. So you couple that with Twitter, just been I was at some event the other day, like a breakfast. And I'm talking to this guy, nice guy, whatever, Scott, we're talking. What do you do? I'm in real estate. What do you do? He says, I work at Equinox. He's the president of Equinox. Okay. I love how he says I work at Equinox. Yeah, no, so. he, and so it's just, I mean, Good that happens, him. that happens like pretty commonly in New York, just all over the place. And so now we we DM, et cetera. And so the power of the networking in New York yeah, is it, next, it, next you, level. You said it, and I, I honestly, people have been saying this since my first day in, in real estate is it's a, it's an industry based on relationships. And, and yep. I'm just kind of translating is what you're saying is it's uh, your network is also just another way of putting your relationships. It's exploded. I mean, I... I spent 20 years in the business making new relationships, and I've made more in the last two years on Twitter than the 20 years before that. And look, a bunch of folks at Blackstone follow the account, Carlisle, et cetera. And they're you know, down the street from Down me. the street. Yeah. Love those guys. And so Catherine Clark writes for the Wall Street Journal, and she DM'd me last week, and we met up. Her book just came out, Billionaires Row. Awesome. No, book, she's right. Yeah, yeah, she's, she's awesome. Really and so all these people that I never would have met, just, just name after name after name. and it's She's a good Twitter follow. Yeah, she is. She's, she's awesome. And so it's just, it's changed my life because it's changed my network. And why not uh, Instagram or LinkedIn? And There's no lurker effect of people just scrolling Instagram to go find great niche knowledge. On, different type on, of yeah, lurker. it's a little bit different. Yeah. Not for me. Do people sometimes when they first meet you, you just say, hey, what's up, Trent? All the time. Yeah, it's so it's, <laughs> it's very odd, but I, I, like, I, I understand. I mean, especially when you get to my fault. Personally, it is, it is somewhat of an inside joke. What piece of advice would you have for anyone, but let's say a professional who's uh, getting started in a business, whether it's a business they've started or they are the business like a brokerage, 
who's looking to leverage social media specifically X or Twitter? Yeah, don't worry about the algorithm or a strategy or what advice you get. If there was a hack, everyone would do it. Everyone would have large accounts and it'd be worthless. Just share thoughts that you think are interesting, period. Do it consistently. Do it every single day and just put it out there. If it's boring, whatever, doesn't matter. Just be consistent, right? And just if you think that XYZ is funny or interesting or relevant, just put it out there and just be con- – that's it. Just just share what you think is interesting and it will resonate with folks around the world that have those same interests as you. I, I – I'm going to think of how I would ask this question. What if that idea backfires and what I where someone's, oh, okay, post whatever I think, whatever I want, and they start posting where, no, again, let, let's take a broker in multi-tenant no. retail, and you're like, oh, gosh, this is kind of weird. No, we're professionals, period, right? Yeah. So if you want to be on there, be controversial, and just, and just you know, be stupid about it, then be anonymous, fine, go do it. But, you know, if it's your person, like, if it's your brand, you don't want to mess with that with controversy or just engagement bait, right? So think of it as this is my brand and, you know, what I say will reflect who I am, right? So it's really, I don't want to say like LinkedIn, but it's like I wouldn't post anything that would be, that would offend people. There's no upside there. Mm -hmm. And so you'll get views, but you'll lose credibility. One of the things I advise younger professionals and and push back if you think I'm wrong is, look, just my opinion is you got to give the world a reason to value your opinion before you just start giving the world your unsolicited opinion. Do you think that's do you agree with that? No, I mean, I would say as long as it's not controversial or offending anyone, just put your opinion out there and just say, this is my opinion. I mean, I I I push back on that as long as it's constructive. Right. Because being wrong is fine. Or when like people watching you make mistakes online is totally fine. Happens every single day as long as you are cordial and trying to add value. I think there's nothing wrong with sharing your opinions, like no matter your age, I would say. What about sometimes on social media, you'll and I'm sure you've seen this, you'll see someone, their persona isn't necessarily who they are in real life or they come across as if they've done a a thousand deals as a principal and you're like, oh, I know they've only done three or four. Are you just saying, hey, just go for it or? Yeah. I mean, look, I think that there's some Wizard of Oz things going on, on on Twitter where folks maybe are out there talking about things as if they're, you know, they've done more than what they have. But I think as long as you're not misleading anyone saying I've done a billion dollars in deals, it doesn't matter. Look, I mean, we've raised 150 in equity over the years. That's not that much. There's a million players much bigger than than me who I don't I don't go out there saying I'm the biggest, best person, player, whatever. I'm just sharing my thoughts. And so, yeah, there's folks out there when you meet them, they have a big following, but they really haven't done that much. But as long as they're not misleading anyone, I see no problem with it. How have you managed to where you've touched on and communicated very clearly the benefits of of a, of a platform like X Twitter for your business? Yeah. But how do, you, how do you manage the benefits it creates with the potential drawback specifically, I'll call it addiction, to where you just, you're on it too much? Yeah, like, no, is, it, totally. is that a is that something you battle every day? Yeah. I mean, my wife keeps me in check. I mean, I, I cannot argue with her when she says, hey, why is your phone here during dinner? She's 100% right, right? And so, I mean, for me, I spend an hour to an hour and a half a day on Twitter because it's a big part of our business. I think that's a very useful thing to do as a fiduciary, right? But you have to monitor that, that those hours do add up, right? And so it's something that I, that I have to be aware of. 
It's a balance, yeah. It's it's helped me so much in yeah. life that it makes sense to do, but it's maybe I can do it an hour a day and not an hour and a half. And sometimes like at the park, I just won't bring my phone at all. And it's, it's something that you have to be aware of and have that balance or else, yeah, I mean, if it takes over your life or your day, it's not worth it no matter what your what your benefit is. And Twitter, uh, again, the way we've the way you've leveraged it and the way we've been talking today is very much a part of business, right? Yep. It's not social 100%. media in, in its what I will consider its more traditional sense where you're just like looking at photos of other people's lives. Like you you are very much leveraging it to put yourself yep. in a position to be more successful. So it kind of gets into the work life balance question is assuming Twitter's within your work sphere how do you how do you view or how do you maintain work life balance today, especially now that you you have a family and and again as you get older perspective changes and compare it to what it looked like when you were in your twenties building your brokerage then principal business? Yeah, I mean I have to set certain rules that and then stick to them, right? So the one I mentioned earlier about my son, right? Every day at 7 p.m., I make sure that I'm there when he goes to bed. He takes a bath at 6.30. I try to make those most of the time. And so that's kind of non-negotiable. I do a date night with my wife once a week, right? So yeah, I mean, it's something that the whole balance thing is something that I, I'm aware of now that I wasn't even aware of five, six, seven years ago. We're expecting our second in March. Congrats. Thank you, sir. And so I'm not sure what that's going to look like, but I'm sure more rules will come gonna, in, into play. So. It's it's going to be a change. If if I'll just share with you my experience, zero yeah. to one was wild. One yeah. to two was wild. Can't two, wait. Two yeah. to three, three to four. At that <laughs> point, you're just you just keep them alive. Bring it know? on, man. Yeah, yeah. Like we were talking about earlier, everything's conditioning. You get conditioned to it. You'll be fine. So you're building a family, yep. right? Aware of this concept of balance, right? Yep. And really doing your best to stick to that. But you know, again, push back. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're still very much in growth mode professionally. Very much so, which which I think will always be the case. Yeah, I mean, look, for me, like as far as my career goes, if I can focus on, you know, can we find the next deal, the rest of it comes into play. Mm -hmm. So I've narrowed down my focus into that because that feeds absolutely everything. So most of my day is what deals are we doing? And so, so I know this, like as long as we execute on that and buy the right properties intrinsically, that will take care of itself and work out. Otherwise, if I worry about, oh, how do I raise the next fund or how do I this, that, it just doesn't, it just, it just kind of takes over you. So you just, I was thinking about next step only. I don't think two, three steps ahead very often. Damn it. I was, you just blew up my next question. Uh, my next question was like, what is it 10 years from now? What is your blue sky scenario look like for your business? I don't think that way. I just, I want to buy every good strip mall deal that hits the market. It's just my goal forever, right? I just, I, mean, I get FOMO otherwise. And so I want to keep buying these things transforming them. And so I just take it one day at a time. I just think problems, it just gets overwhelming if you think of nine problems at a time. It's tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. I have no idea. How. You've been very successful in your space, but you want to keep buying. Yep. You want to do more. You want to grow. You want to buy your words. Every strip mall in the country. Why every good deal in the country. Every, not every strip mall. Exactly. Well, every strip mall at the right price <laughs> the right would price, be a good exactly. deal. Intrinsically right price. Yes. Right. My question is Why? Right. You, you again, I'm, I, I'm not, it's not putting your business out of the streets professionally, financially, you've done very well. Like more is always great. But why do you, in your opinion, why are you so driven to just keep going when a lot of others might say, Hey, you know, I've done really well at this point. I might uh, throttle back. I have no idea why I randomly like this, like strip mall world thing. Right. It's just, it just fell in my lap. Right. I mean, I, I don't know why I'm driven. I don't know why I'm you know, entrepreneurial. I, I can't really answer the question of why. I mean, I, it just, it's what keeps me going and, and I really, really enjoy it. 
don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, right? I have lots of friends who, you know, it's probably both. Yeah, probably who, who are not that driven, but they're, they're doing well, have nice families. They're really happy and that's totally fine and great and maybe even better. And so I don't know why, I don't know where this came from. My, my dad's an engineer, mom, a nurse, they're not business people. And I, I have well, no idea. But they may not be business people, but would you, are, are, are they wired like that? No, not at all. Do you, if you don't mind me asking a brother or sister, yeah. is this something that runs in the family? Nobody. No, I, I have no idea where it came from. So I, I'm, my brother's a engineer as well. And so I don't know why from an early age, I wanted to start businesses, run them. And just so doing deals. Yeah, yeah. I can I, one day maybe I'll, I'll answer it. I have no idea why, but it just, it just is. <laughs> and as someone who's obviously worked with a lot of brokers, but now it's building the infrastructure of company. So you're hiring and in very much in the acquisition yeah. sense, it kind of has a broker mentality. You, you got to go make it happen. Yep. Have you stumbled upon a way to identify this type of mindset when you're hiring of someone who's just going to go out there and get it done? That's the hardest part, yes, I think, is. of the business. And so a lot of folks say that they are, but I think until you hire them and watch, you really, really don't know. It's funny because I put a posting on Twitter a few months ago. I said, hey, hiring someone for acquisitions, what have you. And so I, I think I got hundreds of thousands of views and so I got a bunch of applications. I think and, I applied. Yeah, I think you did. No, I'm just Didn't make it. But <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a real challenge. My right-hand man, I mean, I got so lucky with him. Man. He's, he's a fan, by the way, Kyle. He reached out on Craigslist when he's 22 years old. And I needed someone for like, you know, accounts. We board. might have to explain to the young people what Craigslist yeah. oh, no. is. Monster not that Craigslist. Bad. Monster, no, no, no. Age myself. So he reaches out for this accounts payable job that we had to just cut checks basically and had no experience. He came in and now he's 31 years old and he runs day to day of he's in everything that we do. He works with the attorneys helps us with diligence, with leasing. Who's got the mindset? Project. It's unbelievable. And by accident, I didn't know that on day one. I, I hired this MBA. He just graduated seven, eight years ago. And he sounded great. Go get her. Hey, I'm hungry. And then like his second week on the job, I walk in and his, his feet were on the table. He, just watching a movie. It's like 10 a.m. Right? So that's the one thing. How do you find these folks that are really, really hungry? That's... That's magic, being able to do that consistently. I'm trying to figure so, it out yeah. every day. So I was actually taking notes, hoping you had a, <laughs> a secret secret test or something. Wish I did. Wish I did. I know, yeah, tell me about it. Now, you've, you've had the opportunity to interact and surround yourself with really successful people in all different industries, not just in brokerage or buying deals, but specifically through your LPs and, yep. and, and the relationships you have on that side. Yep. What have you found, and I don't know if you've ever been asked this question, but what have you found to be a common trait or common theme in the really driven high achievers that you've, you've been fortunate enough to build relationships? Yeah, I think that a lot of them are not motivated by, by money. They want to solve a problem, right? And they're passionate about, I want to see a solution for this in this world. I want to see this happen. And in, sol in providing a solution, money sometimes follows. Exactly. It's about, I want to see this done right. This is wrong. It's got to be addressed. I want to correct it. And you see that a lot in tech. So I think that's the main thing. I mean, believe it or not, like they just want to solve a problem. It's not about, I want to get really, really, really rich. And conversely, yeah. unfortunately, there are a lot of people, but people that I'm sure you've yeah. not just interacted with, but have relationships with that haven't 
achieved what they want in life. Yep. What, what have yep. you found to be the biggest obstacle or biggest reason? Yep. If there's a listener who isn't where they want to be in life, yep. what have, what is your experience taught you is the biggest reason they, they haven't got there? They jump around a lot. So like they'll be really smart mm -hmm. and spend, let's say three years doing something and making a lot more progress than really they realize. Right. And then in year three, they go, you know what? I didn't, I didn't, it didn't work for me. Whereas maybe year five would have been like, boom, like hundred million dollars, you hit it, whatever it is. And so they're really smart, talented, they work hard, but they'll quit and they'll be like, well, that looks better. I can figure that out. And then, and then like they do plan B and then three years later they leave again. So they don't allow their career path to compound and they don't realize how much progress they're making in those years mm -hmm. where maybe on paper they don't see it. And plus everyone I know, most, most everyone I know that's really done well, that's self-made. It took them 10 full years from like when they started to like big liquidity event. It takes a long time. Doing uh, one thing. I love the very measurable 10 years. Uh, uh, you, you're, you're saying, they're, look, they're they're doing everything right up front. They're, they're yep. planting the seed and then they're just not given enough time to grow. Yep. They get impatient. That is, as, as you probably know, that is the story of brokerage. I talk to the guys here all the time about that mm -hmm. is they come mm -hmm. in and they, they, they get in at six and they stay to wait for 12, 18, 24 months and 24 months in there. It's not working. You're like, yeah, it's been 24 months. Yep. But 24 months. Oftentimes for a 24 year old, that's 10% of their entire life already. Nice. I mean, if you do the math, right? No, I mean, I, I get it. I mean, it, it's hard and it seems like it's forever. But for guys like you and I, two years, you're like, oh, that's nothing. Yeah, I, mean, like, I, mean, I was doing that at 22. I was on monster.com every day. And, and so I just kept grinding it out. And luckily I made it long enough to do that deal that made me a hundred grand and meet that mentor that showed me how to do deals, et cetera. And so I easily could have left after two, three years easily. I mean, it was four years from 02 when I started until 06, that first deal I did. Four years. Yeah. And it probably felt longer than at the time. And then it's kind of like kids. You said your son's, what, three and a half? Yeah. And it's probably like that, yeah, right? No, no, it's, it's, and you're like, where did it go? It's amazing. Yeah, it's, and uh, it flies. Kids even faster, but like careers are like that, where when you're in the mix, when you're in that really grinded out period of your life, you're three, four, five years, uh, to your point, 10 yeah. really blossoms. Like it seems so long. But then you look back and it's, it's a, the days are long and the years are short. You're making so much like more progress than you realize. Mm -hmm. You're learning way more than you think you are. And so it, it's too bad that you are not aware of that because like it's you're you're starting from zero again when you shift to something else. It's like the clock starts back from the beginning again. And how would you describe your mentality as it relates to how you approach your business? Look, I mean, I, I think that if I'm not facing a challenge, I'm not growing. Right. So I look for, does it feel easy right now? And if it does, that's not good. If I'm comfortable, that's not a good thing. So I want to be learning constantly. And so for me right now, a big shift, which is amazing, is we, we started doing deals nationally. Like six months ago, we really made the shift, which has been like the best thing I've ever done in my career. It's such a blind spot not doing that earlier. And so it's, you mean it's, shift just to widen the geographic? Wide, yeah. Retail, a great deal in this market is a great deal. I mean, so, okay. And so it's a challenge going into, I find a deal, middle of nowhere, whatever it is, it looks good on paper, flying in, figuring out, talking to any, you know, everyone in town, and then you know, there's growth there. It feels great. And so as long as I'm growing, right, like I'm learning new markets. I'll jump in is look, yeah. at the end of the day, I'm just gonna let the audience know that you are human. And yeah. uh, as a human, I have to assume you're just like, me and we're just like everyone else in that are, it's almost like what I call our reptilian brains are constantly telling us to what I call calorie save, slow down. Yeah. And so you talked about earlier, it's like 
these kind of discomfort is growth and, and you seem 100%. to seek these out. But and where I'm going with this is I, I have to assume there are moments where you almost, without you knowing, slip into periods, whether it's days, weeks, months of comfort. How do you snap yourself out? How do you recognize that? And how do you be like, wait a minute? No, I'm comfortable. I have to do more. And this is how do you snap yourself out of it? I just get immediately uncomfortable when I feel like I'm not growing and there's no challenge. I just I get really bored. I'm scared of boredom. Yeah. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Uh, but but that, that's something that I, even myself, and obviously in the organization, I, I do my best to lead every day. It's, it's, it's not just helping people find success. It's sometimes people who found success and they get into this. I don't want to say it's not even a bad lull. It's just, it's a comfort level. It is. Yeah. Look, I think that the, the, the folks that are most successful in the world are failing all the damn time. Like Elon's the richest guy in the world right now, obviously. He's he's failing every single day, whether it's rockets, Twitter, Tesla, whatever it is, right? Yeah. It just, I think that's, that's just, it's something that you get used to and it what keeps you going, honestly. It's not success. And so I'll kind of wrap this up here where it's like, what, what advice would you have? And I know you're still, your business is, it's like a rocket ship, man. It's grown fast, but and I, and I know you still have many, many goals you want to achieve, but but what advice would you have for listeners personally or professionally to that you would give to help them achieve what they want in life? Find something that you like to do. Okay, I know it's cliche. I know that there's a narrative out, out there that says otherwise, but, you know, how do you compete with someone who loves calling every day or or loves X and Y business. Love right? strip malls. Stru love strip malls, exactly. I mean, if if we have someone that's competing with us and for them it's just a job every day where, where they're checking a box, I mean, I wouldn't want to compete with me who's passionate and hungry about doing the next deal, et cetera. So find something that you're excited about and you like. And and I know it sounds, you know, cliche or what have you, but it's not. Like there's things that, it, like, it doesn't matter what it is. If you really like it, the odds of you doing well are a thousand times greater. Last question for you. Is there a, a specific resource, podcast, book, something that you could guide the audience towards to, to help them that's maybe helped you in, in your uh, career? Charlie Munger, the greatest investor of all time, easily. Also best one-liners. Unbelievable. He keeps it simple to the point. It's not complicated. The fundamentals that he looks at are timeless. They're easy to understand and pick up. And I would study him very closely. This is great. And would you do that? Is, a, is there a specific book or maybe the Berkshire Hathaway papers They every year they write? A I might sell a few copies of this right now, but there's the Poor Charlie's Almanac. Simple read. It summarizes everything he's done. It's a, it's a book that he was involved in. I think it's a book that he is probably very, very proud of. And he's been under the radar in a lot of ways behind the scenes. But, you know, his, his, his ways, his fundamental approach to business, it works. It's timeless. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. You're, you're, Amazon's going to wonder why yeah. so many of these books just sold. But uh, that's great. Real estate Trent, strip mall guy. I'll not say your real name, even though we could beep, beep it out, Zach, just for <laughs> safety. I can't thank you enough to come into Nash Vegas. I look forward to hanging with you in New York next time, but thank you so much for sitting down. You've had tremendous success, and I know in many ways you're just getting started. Appreciate it a lot. And uh, yeah, just keep keep sending out those. Do they still call them tweets if it's called X? 
I do. I I can't. I will get the X down eventually, but not for now. It's it's Twitter. It's tweets. Uh, yeah. Well, keep keep uh, putting out that knowledge. I know a lot of. I'll just speak for a lot of my guys. Love it, man. They they reference it, yeah. and and it's not just quippy or yeah. or funny. It's like there's actual yeah. real content in there. So I love, I love what your team is awesome. I mean, they're they're they are cold calling consistently. We hear from them. They're professional. I like the culture here. Love what you guys are building. Really. Well, hey, if you ever want to get a shot of adrenaline, go to our New York office 6 a.m. Right. They'll be waiting for you. Might do that. All right, my man. Thank I'll you very much. You. All right. Thank you. Thanks.